Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand the Scriptures and to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2003, the British Astronomer Royal, now Lord Martin Rees, published a book with the UK title, Our Final Century, Will the Human Race Survive the 21st Century? In the book, he considers the threats to humanity, destruction of the biosphere, runaway effects of technology, uncontrolled scientific research, terrorism, nuclear accidents. And he concludes that there's only a 50% chance, that's a one in two chance, that the human race will survive to the end of this century. Note that this is one of the UK's most distinguished scientists. This is not a crackpot or a doomster. It's quite interesting to see how people responded to this uh, prognosis. Rees himself is very keen on space exploration, and he suggests that we should put a lot of resources into seeking out new places that the human race might colonize, and presumably reproduce the mess we've got already. And that may explain why there's such a lot of excitement whenever they identify a new planet uh, around a different star which has Earth-like properties. 
The optimists say, well, humanity will get its act together. It always has. And it will successfully confront the problems we are facing. And we will develop our own values to motivate us to deal with those problems. So what do we think? Christians have always believed that history is going somewhere. It has an end. And it has an end in two senses. It has an end of an end of time, but it also has an end in the sense of a purpose. So in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're looking for the idea of God's kingdom, the rule of God, being fully realized. And then in the creed, we say his, that is Jesus's, kingdom will have no end. Jesus's kingdom or rule will have unlimited scope and unlimited duration. And the question is, what do we mean? What do we think we mean when we say the Lord's Prayer or the Creed? And I want to begin to explore that with this passage from 1 Colossians, which has just been read to us by John. I want to begin with two verses which are just before the passage which was read. So Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Paul reminds his listeners here that God has brought them into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And the next five verses explain this. Now, Paul is so excited that his prose uh, ratchets up. And indeed, he waxes lyrical. And he uh, expresses these next five verses with great poetic eloquence. Uh, there's much discussion by the commentators as to whether it is a poem or whether it's not. And I think the general view is the meter doesn't work. But let's leave that to one side. His excitement is very clear. This is not a dull piece of theology we're going to look at. This is something enormously exciting, which really motivates Paul. So let's first of all look at verses 15 and 17. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things were hold together. In him, all things were created. All that God made, he made by means of Christ. It was the activity of God the Father working in him. All things have been created through him. It's through Christ's agency that the universe came into being, and he works in total harmony with God the Father realizing God's plan for the universe. And then verse 17, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only is Christ the source of the creation, 
He also sustains it, and he prevents it from falling into chaos. Now, to be utterly honest, these are mysteries which are difficult to understand. There's a profound mystery about the Godhead, the unity of purpose between the Father and the Son, yet their distinct roles or spheres of activity. And there's also a puzzle of how the creative and sustaining work of Christ relates to the universe as we see it. And I'll leave it to the physicists to try and explain that. But I want you to note the refrain, all things, all things. What Paul is referring to here is the totality of the world, including things in heaven and on earth. There is no other source than Christ for what we experience and understand in our world. Now, thus far, what we have is a conventional affirmation of the doctrine of creation, albeit with a particular role, emphasis on the role of Christ. But there's a very surprising twist in these verses. At the end of verse 16, Paul writes, all things were created for him, that is, for Christ. And what's the significance of the for? I think it's explained if we go back to verse 15, where Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now that's a direct reference to the Genesis story, Genesis 1 and 26 and 27, where the account tells us that humankind, humankind is in the image of God with the task of ruling over God's created order with love, care, and compassion. A responsibility we might note that humanity has singularly failed to fulfill. So here, Paul is saying, is the Son, the Christ, in the incarnation, taking upon himself the task which fell to humanity. Verse 18, he is the new beginning. He is the firstborn over all creation. And that leads us naturally to the second half of the poem which speaks of the role of Christ in a renewed creation. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Christ is the head of the church, the new people of God. He is the beginning, that is the source and origin of the new humanity, and that is signaled by his resurrection, the defeat of the great enemies of fallen humanity's sin and death. But it's not only humanity that's renewed. Verse 20, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And these are the same all things as in verse 16, the elements of the first creation, 
including the physical universe and our human world. Now, it's vital to understand this to avoid what I think is a pervasive error in Christian circles. And that error is to assert that Christ's death on the cross in some way saves disembodied souls and implicitly takes them away from this wicked world to a spiritual heaven. As a famous politician used to say, no, no, no. Christ's defeat of death and sin by his sacrificial death on the cross and by his resurrection signals a completely restored humanity inhabiting a completely restored and renewed creation from which sin and evil have been eliminated. And over that, Christ is Lord. He is ruling as the image of the invisible God. And we, the church, are Christ's body, sharing in his rule over the created order with love and care. What a great vision of our future. Let me sum up. The kingdom of the Son is nothing less than a complete renewal of the first creation. Christ is the one whom the whole create Christ is the one who holds together the whole created order and is sustained in being. Christ is the one who, together with the new people of God, rules over the created order with love. That's what the world is waiting for. But we're not there yet. Our daily experience, of course, is of a fallen world, a world of great contrasts, a world in which we experience many good things. I hope you rejoiced with me as you came out on this beautiful morning this morning. There are so many good things in our world. But it's also a world of violence and war, of refugees fleeing for their lives, of greed and poverty, of destruction, of the environment, of disease and fear of death, of broken human relationships and loneliness. It's true that the body of Christ, the church, his people, is numerically stronger than it has ever been worldwide. But there's little sign of Christ's rule over the world. So there are lots of questions. Are there really grounds for hope for a better world? What will it look like? If so, when? What does it mean to say Christ will come again? How is the evil in our world going to be judged and destroyed? What does it mean to affirm in the creed we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come? Now, we plan to address all these questions in the subsequent talks in this series, running right through to next July. So for the present, just let's put those questions aside and focus on today's exploration of Christian hope, the hope for a new humanity and a new creation, the renewal of all things and all people with Christ having the supremacy. 
So how does that affect our lives now? As Christians, we believe that the universe and all things will have a good end, the renewal of all things, and that we as Christian people are to be the renewed humanity. And so we have a purpose in our lives. Compare that with the prevailing secular views. One is, one view is simply that life continues and evolves autonomously. So we need to generate our own myths and values to sustain us on a daily basis. Or maybe we join with Lord Rees in thinking that humankind will probably destroy itself and our world perhaps as soon as the end of the century and we're powerless to stop it. So we should live for ourselves, live for today, try not to think about the future. Our Christian hope rules out both the reaction of selfish autonomy and that of destructive pessimism. And what this means is that what we do with our lives really matters because there will be continuity between our current life and our resurrection life. Just as there will be continuity between our current natural world and the renewed creation. So a life of service to others, or the creation of a thing of beauty, or even just planting an oak tree, will be built into the community life and the natural ecology of the world that is to come. The fulfillment of Christ's kingdom, his rule over a new creation and a redeemed humanity. That is our Christian hope, and that is what should motivate us day by day. Let's pray. In verse 23 of 1 Colossians, Paul exhorts his readers to continue in their faith, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Lord Jesus, we pray that we may be renewed in our hope for a renewed creation and a restored humanity, and that we will live our lives with that hope before us for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.